Welcome, 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 welcome to another episode of Coming Up Next, the podcast. Thanks for streaming uh, or downloading the show. And if you're not already subscribed, you can subscribe at comingupnext.com.au where if this is your first time listening, you can also find links to all of the other previous 145 episodes of the show. Uh, Thank you to last week's guest. Thank you to Mary Poplin. Uh, If you are interested in visual effects or the post-production process or filmmaking in general or you just enjoy listening to these conversations, uh, check out last week's episode with Mary Poplin uh, to get an inside look at how one would start a career in visual effects. Uh, Coming up this Saturday, the 7th of April, if you're in Melbourne, is the first ever Ausflix Independent Film Awards, or the Aussies. And the man behind that, or one of the men behind that, is Ron Brown, and he is my guest this week. Uh, Ron has been working in the film industry for over 40 years, and he's worked on some 1,400-odd productions across various production roles. And uh, I wanted to speak with Ron because I wanted to find out what it was that he wanted to do when he set out to create Ozflix, which you can find at ozflix.tv, which is the first online streaming service dedicated entirely to Australian content. And sort of beyond that, why he wanted to start uh, an independent film awards Um, So we're going to talk about that, we talk about his career, we talk about the usual stuff, and we're going to talk about it right now. Looking over your uh, career history, I was kind of stunned to see that you know, over the course of what's been now sort of 42, 43 years working in the film industry that you've worked in over a thousand productions across every production area available? It's actually probably, I I had a thousand um, productions listed. I, I was keeping track at about a thousand and I... Um, I must admit now my estimate is it's 1,400, 1,400 plus, but I've got to be honest and say that I don't, that I no longer um, track everything and keep a, a, a sort of a, a bio with a, every film listed. But look, I have, it's 45 years now and I have actually, um, yeah, yeah, I have made uh, nearly, probably nearly 1,500 pieces of content as a, as a producer, director, um, writer, editor, some of them I've shot, some of them I've um, sound mixed, some of them I've even, <laughs> believe it or not, music supervised. I, I, I have a um, multi-skilled kind of an approach to, to filmmaking. I, I, I was just interested in everything. I just wanted to get into into the whole into the whole thing and, and find out as much as I could about all the different areas. And, and, and to be honest, some of them I've, um, I've not rated myself very highly in until – um, more recent times when I've kind of looked back on stuff and thought, actually, yeah, I didn't do a bad job of that. Although at the time I, I, I kind of was looking up to, to others in the industry, um, both here and internationally, and thought, you know, um, oh, gee, I wish I could be as good as him. But looking back on it, I, I actually don't think I did a bad job. And then I used to actually, the first the first two feature films that I made that I co-directed with my with my wife and creative partner, I um, I wouldn't like them i would i i'd I'd lit lots and lots and lots of factual uh, content documentaries and and factual tv content over the many years but i didn't rate myself in terms of movies as a a dop so i'd camera operate because i like my um um you know i guess I, i i preferred my composition but i didn't have a um a strong sense of my own sort of ability in lighting and then we kind of had a bit of a, a, a bad experience with the DOP that we were working with. And um, on the third feature, my wife said, look, just light it yourself. You know, you know how to light, just light it. And 
when I look at it back, I'm, I'm really pleased with it. So now I kind of, at a very much late point in my career, I, I now actually think that I can, I'm certainly not uh, Don McAlpine, you know, uh, let alone <laughs> Nestor Alamendros, but I, but I do actually think that I've kind of come to appreciate <laughs> a bit better uh, over time, yeah. Yeah, I, I think as you sort of settle into your skin a little bit in, in, uh, in creative fields, probably in any field, uh, you start to appreciate, you know your own your own work and your own skills and and the sort of things that you have done over your career um how how i mean you you know as someone who has been working for for so long in in the film industry uh and you know in recent times having started up your own um digital kind of distribution platform with Ozflix you've probably yeah. seen a hell of a lot of you know young guns, young kids come through, and and sort of work their way up, probably to the level where you know some of them are, are now very uh, experienced practitioners. How significant is it for you, and how much do you kind of instill in these people when they come to your door to be multifaceted and to try as many different areas of production as possible? Yeah. Okay. Good question. Well, look. I honestly think that the most um, difficult part about making films in Australia is getting a decent budget. And I learned very, very early on that, you know, to be able to employ everybody that you wanted to with all the specialist skills was really um, beyond, you know, beyond my scope for the independence that I, I, I demanded. So I guess I just sort of saw it as an economic necessity. I guess I just sort of thought, look, I better master this and, and know how to do it so that I, either I can do it myself or I can get, um, you know, young younger people who are less expensive and kind of at least know what they're supposed to be doing and be, be able to supervise them or, or um, you know, provide some guidance to them if they're actually uh, going to be running around at my behest. So, yeah, I, I just took that as a kind of an economic necessity when I first started that I should learn all these things. I mean, I had a natural curiosity, but by the same token, I saw it as much in the practical sense as how can I afford um, a music supervisor? Maybe I just better find out about what what's involved in, in that or a sound designer or, you know, a, a, a colour grader um, or, or, or a, an animator or a special, you know, all of the things that I've taught myself over the years, I guess I've... Um, I've done pretty much out of a practical necessity. But in the second part of your question, which is, you know, when I'm um, approached by young people, look, since my daughter went to film school and 27, 27 young hopefuls entered the course and two years later there were uh, about, I think there were maybe 25 graduates, a couple dropped out along the way, but at the end... Only two of them, and Rebecca, my daughter, was one of them, and, and, and there was another chap who went and worked in um, in some kind of, I, I think it was like, I would say, like wedding wedding films or real estate films or something kind of fairly fairly pedestrian, unfortunately, not not to take anything from people who do that work but for a living, but, I mean, it's not um, it's not Hollywood, you know. So I, I kind of, um, I thought, well, those two... Those two people have got a job. They're making a living out of this industry, in this industry. But the the other twenty three um, drifted off into into other into other areas, and and it was kind of tragic. I, I felt that you know all these people's a their hopes had been um, you know had been sort of built up. B they'd actually spent time at the at the taxpayers' expense learning these things, not of their own, because it was a, a TAFE based. Um, course rather than a, a university course so you didn't have to pay much for it I'm sure the overheads of the course were greater than the fees and and you know these folks gave two years of their life to this training and came out and there were no jobs for them and I thought well there's there's something terribly wrong there and and that was to me partly about the way the course was structured and what the implicit um, you know direction of the of the training was but I also thought you know what's lacking here is that there is nowhere I guess for um, a lot of the content that people make um, to really go with any permanence. So the Ausflex thing was very much the Ausflex um, agenda was very much about creating a way for people's content to be put up there, uh, aggregated into into a way that sort of made it, I guess, economically feasible to store it and and, and sort of provide it to people without it being, let's say, a, a sort of a government. Um, 
a government archive and, um, you know, and giving, I guess, hope to people that, look, if you come out of film school and you want to make something, you know, here's a place where you can find some audience. And I, I think there's an audience for every film. So I guess I, I do encourage people when they knock on my door, I do say, go and make it, go and make it. We'll put it up. We'll, we'll show it. Because I think even though at the end of the day, there's a range of quality and a range of experience in the films that we stream from um, very, very, you know, early emerging people who are still learning their, their, their craft right through to brilliant work. Um, at the same time, you know, it's very, very, very inexpensive to store and very inexpensive to stream. So it's not as though, um, you know, it's not as though we, we can't afford to do it. We can afford to store it and we can afford to stream it. And as I said, there's an audience for every film. I guess it makes you so much more employable to be able to do all of these things, uh, you know, if you can shoot and if you can cut, then you're more likely to, oh, yeah. you know, get get yeah. on the sets to then be able to learn to direct or, or whatever the case may be. Oh, yeah, look, certainly. When I, when I first got to Melbourne, I, I was... Um, I was raised in Sydney and um, when I first, and I, I did my apprenticeship in TV stations in Sydney. And when I first got to Melbourne, um, I was actually working on a, on a show at a TV network. And then that show folded up three months later and I was pretty much unemployed. And I had the prospect of going back to Sydney or staying in Melbourne. And I thought Melbourne was nice. I'd, I'd, I'd stay. And so I um, had to kind of start, yeah, creating work for myself, if you like. There's no question whatsoever that because I was um, so multi-skilled, I could swing a boom, I could record sound, I could mix sound in a studio, um, I could camera assist and I could edit. Um, I was a very, very quick, a very quick editor even at a young age. Um, yeah, I was, I was, I was in full employment at all times. I'd go from thing to thing, but you know, I, I was, I was rarely out of work. So, um, yeah, being multi-skilled was a big help in that respect. But in later life, as a, as a, as a filmmaker. Um, I made a TV series about eight years ago and it spread out over two or three years, maybe four or five actually, that I was, I was making it, called The Chefs of the Great Hotels of the World, in which I would travel around the world um, and stay in luxury hotels um, and interview the chefs and film them cooking their signature dishes and, and, and put together a sort of a half-hour episode around that, that, that hotel, that chef in that country and its cuisine. And... I was the producer, I was the director, I was the cameraman, I was the sound recordist, I was the writer when I got home and the narrator, and I was actually the on-camera talent. So when I would go to Istanbul, I literally would set the camera up on a tripod, roll the camera, run around the front and do the two-camera stand-up at the beginning <laughs> of the episode, run back around and cut and watch that back. And if I needed a second or a third or a fourth take, I'd run and do it again and again until I got a take I was happy with. And... Um, I'd do that for the opener and the closer and then I'd come home and write a, a, narr a narration and record that, um, literally record that in my own in my own editing room, um, yeah, with the same, you know, exact same radio mic um, that I used on, on, on location. And, and, and I would, that was a one-man TV show. It sold in 47 countries around the world. So that was completely, completely a, I guess, um, you know, only possible because I was, I was able to do all that stuff because I had, uh, you know, the, the technical chops but also the confidence, I guess, to, to be able to pull it off. And, you know, that showed – that screened on SBS in Australia and, 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 uh, and you know, 46 other countries. And, and um, I, I guess I'd have to say that um, you can't do that. You don't have that level of independence unless you've got um, quite a lot of different um, strings to your bow, really, and uh, – I mean, I'm not saying. Look, I don't want people to misunderstand and think I'm, I'm um, saying how clever I am about this. I actually, you know, I worked hard to to learn those skills, and I think most people can. Most people can master those things. It's not it's not um, impossible for people to learn to 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 shoot, record, sound, edit, and and so on. Well, and I meet I meet lots of young people now. Who have really got that message and 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 have the and have the chops across a whole range of skills? It's 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 certainly not me alone. It's it's a thing that some people do embrace, and it's I think it's terrific. Yeah, it does certainly makes you a lot more employable too. Yeah, I had uh, uh, Philip Noyce on uh, not long ago, and he said, yep. you know, you don't need that much skill to make movies. It's actually all about your imagination. You know, all you need is a little bit of experience, and then the rest is about applying your imagination, and whether that's 
you know, shooting The Quiet American or whether that's creating a docu-series about, you know, touring around the world and, and speaking with chefs in, in, hotel, in luxury hotels. You know, it's, it's sort of how far can you push your, your own limitations um, and, and the skills are kind of, uh, I guess, you, you, you just build them up from experience, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've got to admit, I was, um, whenever a new software, certainly when, well, look, when everything went digital, I, I did start out in, I did start out in television when um, obviously there was two-inch videotape and later one-inch videotape in, in those days, and there was um, 16 millimeter film in the news department and in the documentary and current affairs sort of areas. Subsequently, when I've started, when I left television and started freelancing, I was working on 35mm um, film, you know, features and 35mm TV commercials and stuff as well and um, continued, you know, throughout the 40-odd years to embrace each of the new technologies as they've come along. And I'm a bit of an early adopter in that sense. When something comes along that looks like it's it's promising, oh, I will leap in. I won't I won't stand back and go, oh, yeah, look, I'm happy with what I'm doing. I'll, I'll be like, well, if this is coming, I should know about it. So I, I would definitely push myself forward to, to try to find out about it. And when we got to the digital revolution, you know, when it was possible to actually shoot digital, um, edit digital, and, and, and the laboratory was not necessary. And, um, you know, you could start to re- start to realise very quickly that you could do all your, all your post-production, you could do all your you know, your um, effects or your titling or your um, transitions, everything, everything, everything could be done on screen and in the software. And this was an epiphany early on. I mean, now we take it for granted and the new generations of filmmakers coming through film schools and stuff um, probably don't even realise, you know, how easy it is compared to how it used to be. But when when um, when we transitioned out of um, waiting weeks and weeks and paying, you know, literally tens of thousands of dollars to have your film stock and processing and work prints and editing um, materials created in the laboratory and then you did your editing and then later you sent them all back to the laboratory for more tens of thousands of dollars. Now you can literally buy a $1,000 software package that does all of that and you do it on your laptop computer or, or, or your desktop computer. Um, it is insanely revolutionary and it does empower people. It definitely allows people to go out and make anything and do it in a really, really, I guess, a painless way compared to the way it used to have to be. So that's, for me, that's been, I guess, one of the most um, rewarding aspects of filmmaking is that I finally got to the point now where, you know, you can just pick up the camera, go and shoot it, bring it back and, and edit it, and the whole thing can be done in your own hands for virtually nothing, and it is down to your imagination. <laughs> that That is where we're at, definitely. Yeah, totally. And, you know, if you like... Steve Soderbergh, you go and just shoot it on your iPhone because that's what's available and that's what the uh, the technology is. Yeah, look, I, I actually would like to um, – I've actually written um, a post recently on Facebook calling for writers to approach uh, – thriller, thriller script writers to approach me because I've got, a, I've got an idea about a um, – got an idea, just a kind of a, a, general, a general idea for a, for a movie um, shot on a phone but where the phone is the, is the central character of the film. So um, I'm, I'm looking to commission that script this year. But I think, yeah, totally, I think we'll, I think we'll be seeing more and more quality in the, in the recording technology in phones, and I think people will be able to make movies on their phones to a really high standard in no time. So, I mean, you mentioned uh, before, you know, you collaborate with your wife, uh, Ruth, and I know that your, your daughters, Beck and Bella, yeah. are both... Yeah. Uh, working in That's the film good. it's it seems like you know you kind of keep it all in the family when it comes to uh when it comes to your work uh, and i know that you uh your dad was uh was a senior vice president for um universal in australia and and in the pacific what was it like to kind of grow up with film so entrenched in in your kind of dna it was a family thing definitely look my dad my dad went to America when I was um, three years old. He took the whole family. We went on a boat in those days to, to America and um, we went to California and he got a job. Um, eventually he, he was um, doing various things, promoting musical concerts and things like that and as a producer and then he eventually was offered a, a job in the MCA talent agency before they bought Universal Studios and it became MCA Universal. And when um, my dad eventually transitioned um, from MCA to Universal and became a, a sales 
and distribution executive at Universal, um, he just used to come home. I mean, apart from the fact that we lived in Los Angeles for, for a few years there and I kind of became, you know, a, a, a bit of, well, I kind of certainly had that, that sort of um, the culture of the place um, started to become second nature to me. But more, more importantly was the fact that when we, when we moved back to Australia and he headed up Universal in Australia and then eventually New Zealand, South Pacific, Southeast Asia, Japan, and then eventually he was in charge of Universal sales and distribution worldwide. So, um, and he moved back to, to, the, to, the, to the Black Tower at Universal Studios and he, he was in charge of the whole world. But I um, grew up with a regular sort of weekend um, ritual, if you like, where we had a 16mm projector and a, um, a big screen and a good sound system in our living room at my parents' house. And on Friday and Saturday nights, I would my dad would bring home 16mm prints of the latest films, that, whether it was an Alfred Hitchcock film or a, you know whatever it was that he was going to be releasing a few months down the track. He'd get these preview copies in 16mm that, the, that they'd send out to their branch offices around the world. And he'd bring those home and watch them. And I'd sit and watch them. And I'd be able to invite school friends and... I still, I've still got friends that sort of say, "I'll never forget going to your, going to your parents' house on a Saturday night and watching <laughs> a film three months before it came out to the rest of, in the cinemas for the rest of the, the rest of the, the community." Um, no, that I did grow up with, and I saw thousands of films actually as as a as a as a young man, I guess as a teenager, as a, as, a, as a young adult, um, literally. I've seen thousands of films, which it makes me very, very boring to go to the movies with because when I actually sit and watch a film, I tend to be distracted now by, well, first of all, um, the plots. I, I certainly sort of, um, in five minutes, I can pretty much see exactly where the, I think the plot's likely to go and I'm, and I, and I'm kind of a bit of bad company in that sense. And then... Um, I can also see all the references. So I'm one of those kind of people who, you know, watch a film and go, oh, okay, that's like the scene in, you know, in in, in Rope. Oh, that's like the idea. <laughs> from, and I just, you know, oh, that's just a rip off of the birds. Or, I mean, I'm just using Hitchcock analogies here, but, you know, just um, that whole sort of um, seeing everything in every film as seeing as being something from somewhere. And I'm not, the, you know, I'm not, again, I'm not the only person who can do this. There's lots and lots of, of really good film buffs. A lot of critics, you know, who see absolutely everything do this kind of thing too. But it makes me now, it's actually a help in terms of when somebody sends me a script and, and we've got a hundred, we've had a hundred scripts submitted to us in the last um, month since we started uh, the, the Ausflix Originals project. We're going to actually start making films for Ausflix. But um when um, people send me scripts now, I can pretty quickly scan through a script and, and sort of see how much originality, if you like, is in it and, and, and how I think it is going to play out. Um, that's very useful, seeing a lot of films. So I do urge filmmakers. I'm actually a bit surprised and frequently disappointed when people come to me from film school and I'll go, oh, yeah, um, so you remember the thing in Casablanca? And they'll be like, what? And I'll be like, you've seen Casablanca? And they're like, no, I don't think so. And I, so I do have these, more and more as I get older now, I do have these kind of, I must, they must look at my face and I must have this terribly disappointed look on my face <laughs> where it's like, where, where I, I sort of appear to be shaming them because they haven't seen films that were made 70, 80 years ago, you know. But I, I kind of, I kind of can't help, um, I kind of can't <laughs> can't help that, or or you know, I'll I'll sort of, fortunately look a lot of a lot of the good a lot of the good people have seen a lot of stuff, but there's certainly people who who kind of cross my my threshold who um who haven't seen any of the, what's that book the thousand films you got to see before you die well yeah so I I think you know everybody needs everybody at film school should be given that book when they enrol here's the thousand films to see before you die and, <laughs> and go and do it you know go and go and actually. Go and actually sit through Eisenstein and D.W. Griffith and, and, and then on to, you know, everybody else that was – go and see Easy Rider. How many people haven't seen Easy Rider? I'm like, this revolutionised Hollywood. This was the film that these guys made for nothing, um, you know, on, on kind of the smell of an oily rag. They went out there with their with their sort of their mates and shot this film and put it all together. And when it went on in the cinema, it was absolutely and completely captured the zeitgeist of, of, of young people and, and the revolutionary fervour in young people in, in, the, in the society at the time in the mid-60s and completely changed everything. And people don't, like, even know that and haven't, and haven't watched it. So I, I kind of, um, I do find myself, as I get older, I do find myself sort of evangelising these, these classic films and being terribly disappointed when young 
filmmakers come to me that haven't seen this stuff. So anyhow, that's just that's a that's a that I suppose is is a um, a problem of of being older and having um, and having watched stuff for a long time. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but I think there's a, I think there's certainly some merit in what you're saying. You know, if you're going to endeavour to get into a film industry or an industry. You know, you should understand the history of it and what's come before you, um, you know, so that you can create and evolve and you're not, like, you're not creating something in a bubble. I find that, absolutely. I, I, look, I must say, I find that um, some people genuinely put elements into their films that have, have been done, you know, before and um, and I kind of go, oh, is that uh, is that an homage to uh, Busby Berkeley's, uh, you know, Gold Diggers of '33? And they're like, what? And I'm like, uh, Busby Berkeley. You know, do you know who Busby Berkeley is? And they go, like, no, I don't think so. And I'm like, oh, okay. So that obviously wasn't an homage. It was just some similar idea. But then other people will come with stuff, and I'll say, oh, okay, that's right. Okay, so that's like, you know, that's like Tom Cruise in Top Gun, and they'll be like. Oh, you recognise that, did you? Yeah, so so that does happen, but 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 you know, definitely people should watch. I think if you want to be a filmmaker, you should fill up every conceivable spare moment watching films. But go back and watch all the classic films. Don't. I, I mean, I, I do meet a lot of people who've seen every every iteration of every Marvel comic and DC, um, you know, uh, comic um, film that's been released. You know, they've seen all the all the Spider-Mans and all the sort of, you know, Batmans and all that. And I'm kind of like, oh, yeah, um, okay, but, you know, have you have you gone back and watched um, Psycho? You know, have you seen Psycho? Did you did you, did you you watch that? No. Um, oh, yeah, I think they had it on in my film course, but I don't think I went to the screening, you know. So, but um, I think, the, look, the, the, the thing about kind of what you watch and what you want to watch is um, eventually – I guess people's tastes mature. You know, you, at, at first when you're emerging, when you're 18, it's quite different to when you're 25 and that's quite different to when you're 35. And as you, I suppose, as you get to a point of um, uh, uh, deciding that you're serious about this, you know, whether that's, and it, it happens at different ages. So some people kind of do a film course because they think it's a cool thing to do and they'd like to be a filmmaker, but they don't really actually have any great understanding of what a career as a filmmaker might mean. Unfortunately, that happens in a lot of careers. I, I've met a lot of lawyers now and 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 uh, and others who've come out of their courses and and accountants and others who've said to me, "Oh, if I really knew what accounting was, I'd have never chosen it." You know, I, I, it just I just thought I'd be able to make a lot of money, you know. But it's the most boring, horrible job, and I hate it. And you know, so I mean, I you do meet people, but if you want to be a filmmaker, there's nothing actually good about um, there's nothing actually good about um, you know taking on a career as a filmmaker, um, except unless you love to do it. You know, it's not – I actually think there's a lot big mis- misunderstanding and a lot of people think that um, it's a cool career that, you know, you might get um, a lot of attention or you might get a lot of um, prizes and awards or make a lot of money or uh, meet a lot of girls. I don't know. I don't know what people what, what people hope for when they, when they embark on a film. But the really best – the best reason is that you actually love doing it and it doesn't matter if you don't make any money, don't meet any girls or, you know, aren't perceived as being the coolest guy on the block. If you really love doing it, then you should just go and do it. It's a really hard, I actually think it's a really, really hard career. I think it's a really, in this day and age, there are so, 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 so many people that want to be filmmakers now. It's like everybody, every like everyone wants to be a filmmaker. I, 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 I've got a... Um, I have three daughters, as you said before, and I'll come back to that in a second. But um, my three daughters, as they were going through school, high school in particular, and even at university, um, they'd get to talking to their friends and, yeah, my dad's a film producer and and whatever, and they'd be, oh, I want to be a filmmaker. Could I meet him? So um, this kind of happened. It started as a trickle and then it grew to an absolute, you know, an absolute deluge. And it's just kind of, I thought, well, when I was a teenager, when I was at school, when I was growing up, um, everyone wanted to be a rock star. They wanted to play guitar or write songs and sing in a band. That was the kind of the cool, the cool job. But um, nowadays it seems to have shifted. We're, we're a generation down the track where now sort of everyone has to be either an actor or a filmmaker of some persuasion. So it seems to be the the aspirational job for just about everybody these days. But 
you know, unless you really, really, really love films, I don't think you should. I don't think you should do that. I think you should go and go watch a bunch of films. Start with that, and then and then form some views around what kind of films you'd want to make, and then decide, you know, to go and be a filmmaker. <laughs> yeah. Start start it. We need to start people earlier. That whole question about visual literacy and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, that's a, I've got a bit of a bee in my bonnet. As far as my two daughters are concerned, you touched on that before. I'm, I'm happy to um, to sort of fill in the gaps there. I, I have three daughters, and one of them's a concert pianist, and um, she lives in Paris, and she kind of just got interested in classical music very early. There's been no classical music in, in this household when she was growing up. Um, I listened to rock and, and pop and some jazz, but she just got interested in classical music, got interested in the piano, and she, she also learned flute and, and um, just progressed really, really quickly with it, and that's the direction that she went in. But our second daughter, um, Beck, she said at a very early age, at around about the age of about 12, could I come on, um, you know, could I come to work with you in the holidays and see, you know, what you guys do? And I was like, sure. And she really enjoyed it, and by the age of, I guess, 17, she decided that maybe 16, maybe even 15, she, she decided that she wanted to, to do um, film and TV work of some some sort, she wasn't exactly sure, but she liked the she liked the, the whole idea of that. And um, Bella, our youngest daughter, who's now a writer and um, a very accomplished one, she had no idea what she wanted to do right through school and almost actually right through uni. Although she did do cinema studies, obviously, and literature at uni, but she didn't, and she enjoyed writing, but she didn't have a clear, well formed view of herself as a writer. The the thing I was going to say about my daughters is that, you know, they just, um, I guess, in much the same way as I did because my father was in the industry and, and I really enjoyed watching films, um, I think my daughters had were exposed to the same thing. And then by the time Rebecca decided, yes, she had a grandfather in the film industry and, and, and a father in the film and TV industry, and we were both in different fields. My dad was in distribution. I was I was a filmmaker. So she kind of got a quite a, 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 a you know a broader view I guess of um of what goes on and um she's really at the moment I mean she she's worked as a producer she's worked as a director at the ABC directing news and, and live you know broadcast she's um now working at Sharmel Films Natalie Miller's company and um she's in charge of the distribution there at this stage so she's um she's kind of moved into distribution for a while to to learn that I mean it's um she's still she's still kind of finding you know different areas of the industry interesting and and is on a i guess um a quite an eclectic kind of quest she's not hasn't sort of focused down onto any one particular um aspect of the industry to work in she's she's still kind of um learning uh, bella's determined to be uh, you know to continue with the writing i think so but yes it's it's sort of a third generation now so uh yeah it's one of those um it's one of those things. It's a it's a it's a good industry to be in if you if you are um, you know if you're creative and you enjoy doing it because as a as a creative lifestyle, it does cross a lot of different creative fields. You know, it crosses visual arts and it crosses costume and it crosses visual arts in terms of the the you know sound the sound and, and sound design and the music um, areas. You know, all the different areas that that filmmaking involves. You can, you can kind of slot in in lots and lots of different ways there. Um, even, uh, yeah, I guess, I mean, even makeup and special visual effects and practical effects and, you know, as, as so many, so many, so many areas. Um, I, I, I'm very pleased I've got two daughters in the industry. I'm very proud of them. And I guess they're, you know, they're pretty lucky that they had a dad who could, I guess, take them on set and, and kind of show them and, and encourage them or kind of massage them into the realities of what a life in film would be. Do, do you remember actually on that subject, do you remember when you uh, decided that you wanted to get into making films or do you actually do you even remember when you did first make something uh, when you were growing up as a kid or something something that having an experience yeah yeah i do i do i do so um basically what happened was um my dad when we went to america um there was home movies home movies had just kind of just started to um develop uh people had eight millimeter uh, cameras and eight millimeter cartridges of film, and uh, like a lot of people of my generation, I my dad bought one to take home movies on, 
and the novelty wore off very, very quickly for him, uh, but not for me. I actually kind of really, this was a really empowering uh, technology. Um, still photographs were of interest, and I, I had a stills camera and took lots of still photographs as well. Um, but as I was growing up, the 8mm camera, and I got an 8mm projector eventually and, you know, the ability to splice it together. And then when we got to Super 8 with sort of a sound stripe down the side of it, a magnetic stripe, and we could add, you know, music effects and, and, and dialogue to it and so on. Um, it was very rudimentary, but it was, it was yes, it was definitely... It was definitely where I started. I think the two two big turning points for me, though, in terms of feeling that I was in the right place were probably not those days as a teenager with a Super 8 camera or an 8mm Super 8 camera. Um, the two turning points probably were um, I, I, had, I started a law, an arts law degree at university and um, decided that I, didn't, I wasn't enjoying that. And I dropped out and got a job at Channel 7 as a boom operator sweeping the floor. And I and rolling cable and all that sort of stuff. And I, I remember I was paid thirty seven dollars fifty a week. And I um I thought, well it was just great to be in a TV station and really kind of where people were making stuff. And I fell in with a, a guy, a news cameraman, and um oh, he was a studio cameraman and then he went to become a news cameraman and I also fell in his name was Ross Flaherty, and then I also fell in with Russell Mulcahy, who went on to, to make a bunch of a bunch of movies. Um, who was an editor at Channel 7 News at the time. And we sort of formed up a little kind of posse and um, uh, Ross and I went off and made some, Ross and I went off and made some um, films. And the first 16 mil film I made um, was actually just, was just visuals that we created and, and edited together with an Elton John song back in the, back in the day, which was called 60 Years On. And I put that film together. I didn't really know too much actually about about editing because I was working in the sound department but I kind of edited it together as best I could and got some tips from the editors there and put the film together and eventually um, submitted it to David Stratton at that stage David Stratton this is 1974 and David Stratton was the festival director of the Sydney Film Festival Sydney International Film Festival which in those days was running in the Rose Bay Winter Garden and he chose my film for the, for, the, for the film festival in 1974. And I, um, I used to go to the film festival every year and see all the Bergman and the Kurosawa and all the, all the films that were on in those, in those days. I'd trot along and um, this time for my first 16 mil film, it was on at the, at the Sydney Film Festival. So I went along and I can't remember, I think it played with like a Bergman film or something. It was the short before a, before a Bergman film. And I, I, just thought this is, was the most amazing validation of my um, of my you know pulling this film together that, that that it was actually on at the Sydney Film Festival and and I'd kind of um, <laughs> kind of felt like yeah look I, this is great I, I feel that I was I, I started to feel I was getting to be maybe a part of this you know the second one probably was um, when I got to Melbourne which was nineteen. 75 I hadn't been in Melbourne too long only a couple of years when um, I got a phone call out of the blue I, I was an editor by then and I got a phone call out of the blue um, from a man called Tony Patterson and he said look um, he said I'm in the middle of this film um, in fact well I'm nearly at the end of it but the director keeps making me recut it and, and recut it and recut it and I'm going crazy but I've run out of time because we booked the sound mix and we booked the, the laboratory and the film's got a release date and I need um, you to come in and and, um, and help me and, and sort of finish off all the sound editing and prepare all the sound for the mix and everything. And I said, oh, okay, sure. And that film was Mad Max. Now, <laughs> at, the, at, at the time, nobody knew um, what Mad Max was going to turn into. Not, not, not Byron Kennedy, not George Miller, not Tony Patterson, not me, and, and probably not most of the people who worked on it. Well, none of us to be honest, had any any idea that it was going to turn into an, an enormous global um, success, that it cost $340,000 to make and that it was going to make $104 million at the box office. It was going to be a smash in America and, and in Japan and so on. And obviously nobody, nobody predicted that it was going to spawn the franchise that it did. But we, um, we were making the film 
in the same spirit that people make independent films these days, that you, you come out of film school, or not in George's case, but, you know, in George's case, you come out of med school, but you come out of, um, you know, you're, you're young, you're sort of full of energy and, and, and you've got enough confidence to sort of, you know, talk people into sort of, you know, coming along with you for the ride and you, you sort of make something. And it really, we just didn't know. We, we didn't know. We were all just kind of there. I mean, in the, in the editing of Mad Max, um, uh, Luke Buckmaster's re- recently released a book about about um, about Mad Max, the first Mad, making of the first Mad Max film, and he kind of gets it a bit wrong because he says that um, he says that Byron um, edited the film on a homemade editing machine that Byron's dad made on his kitchen table on his dad's kitchen table. That's not quite right. I. I, I suspect that Byron may have made an assembly of the film, but by the time I got on, on Mad Max, the film was actually um, well and truly cut um, professionally on a, um, on a, in, in, a, in a professional editing room on a large Prevost machine. It was a 1635 machine, actually. It actually had changeover um, gears and, and prisms and stuff, so you could do 16 and 35. But Mad Max was actually shot in 35, of course, but it was edited in 16mm. And we um, the whole film was... All the post-production was in 16 millimeter to save money, and in black and white, by the way, too, to save even more money. So that the um, we never saw the color film until the film went to the lab for neg matching and 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 final um, and the, its first you know its first um, uh, answer print. But when we when I was there and doing the doing the sound, um, they had a big <laughs> editing machine, and the, they were certainly doing it on a very professional level. And Tony was an experienced editor, but he and he and George. Um, didn't see eye to eye on a lot of stuff, and uh, Tony actually said to me one night as we were as we were leaving the editing room, we're locking up. Um, George had gone, Byron wasn't around, and just Tony and I were kind of locking up one night. And uh, he turned to me and he said, "Mate, you'll cut, you'll be cutting his next one." So he was sort of um, determined that uh, he'd already determined that uh, he and George hadn't hadn't got along, and he wasn't likely to to be editing the next one but <laughs> the, it was a, a very very hard film to edit and yeah. i'd have to i'd have to say that um it wasn't shot um with any sense how can i put this um politely it wasn't shot with any sense of um of real understanding about um how how you cover a scene and how you um you know, how it's all going to be later cut together. Um, George had a bunch of really imaginative ideas for where to put the camera to capture the action, but he had no real understanding of um, um, of a lot of things, including crossing basic things that we take for granted, like crossing the line. You know, he, there's many, 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 many line crosses in that film where people will suddenly appear on the other side of the screen to where you'd have expected them on the reverse and things like that because George just said, said no, I want the camera here, and David would, would shoot it, you know, they'd argue too sometimes. But um, but uh, anyway, when the footage came in, Tony, it was hard, really hell, hellish to cut. And and interestingly, um, it transcends that. I mean, when you watch Mad Max now, it transcends that. The, the character's so iconic, the shots are so great, the story is so sort of simple and graphic and, and uh, you know, the sound, the music, everything else is there. Um it's the performance, I guess, too, of, of, of Mel. You know, the whole thing is really um, is really very, very captivating, even though um, the technique of the director at that point in time, I mean, George has gone on to be a very, very good, very good director in, in terms of his understanding of all of that stuff, I believe, now. But at the time, he, he really was learning. It was just, it was film school for, for him and... Um, yeah, it was hard to cut. Ha! But we um, we got it finished and 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 we went um, went off to the mix. My, I'm not in the credits of the film, unfortunately, because they'd sent Tony called me on a Sunday afternoon and got me in on Monday morning. But they'd sent all the credits off to the lab on Friday afternoon because it had to be done all optically, and that was going to take a few weeks. So they thought they had all the crew worked out by then, and they had it all figured out and sent all the the credits off. And I'm not in the credits, but. Anyway, George and I, George and I have talked about this since, and um, he said, "Yes, yes, I remember you. I remember you." So um, I guess that's, I guess that, I guess that's enough validation. But I, I was definitely there. We edited it, by the way. Ha, we edited it in this little room. It was a sort of a, a, a terrace house in uh, Glen Huntley Road, Elstonwick, above above a massage parlour, above a brothel, and um, next door was an Indian restaurant. So we kind of all through the day, and particularly in the early part of the evening. 
Um, there were lots of gorgeous Indian food smells, curry smells wafting in and, in and out of the editing room. And at the far end of the corridor that we, the, the upstairs corridor, um, the, the man who used to run the black and white processing machine at, um, and I think that he's there, he was there because they decided to make the movie and do black and white work prints. But he, when they decommissioned the black and white processing machine at Cinebex Laboratories in, um, in Elstonwick, um, he'd bought the machine for, for peanuts or had been given it and he'd installed it and, and um, was running it as a black and white processing facility down the back um, of this of this um, upstairs, this story above the, the, the massage parlour. So the smells of all the chemicals from the processing machine would waft in from one direction and the and the curries would all sort of drift in from the other direction. It was quite a... I, I'll never forget that. I, I can't... I, to this day, I can't forget the sort of the aroma and the smells surrounding the editing of that <laughs> that movie. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure the uh, the audio the audio from the uh, from the downstairs made it quite a, um, a sensorial feast. <laughs> so, well, that was the, that was Mad Max, but I mean those two things. And after Mad Max, I'm like, well, I guess you know, I'm in the film industry. You know, I'm, I, I, that, they were the my short film in the in the 1974 Sydney Film Festival, um, my first 16 millimeter short, and the and the um, I guess and the um, the Mad Max experience. And then after that, I was kind of pretty much convinced that this is what I had to do, and, and just kind of pursued it. It's an incredible time to to kind of be working and, and, and meeting people. And I guess just from a kind of historical point of view, an incredible time to uh, have been starting out and, and to be having these these experiences. You know, looking back on um, on the times, as you say, it, it, it is that um, the Australian film industry renaissance, um, which was sparked effectively by... Um, a, a movement, you know, the, the, the filmmakers' cooperative movement. There was a filmmakers' cooperative in Sydney and a filmmakers' cooperative in Melbourne, primarily where indie filmmakers who'd been running around in the late sixties um, with sixteen millimeter cameras and were starting to make longer form content. Um, but we were catapulted into a film industry by essentially by Philip Adams and Barry Jones um, putting their heads together. And Barry, at this stage, had come out of being a school teacher and was. A state politician, I think, a Labor politician in Victoria, and Philip, of course, was a a, a creative director of a of a of an, an wholly Australian-owned advertising agency in St Kilda Road, and they put their heads together. Philip made a film, and he realised that the only way the film industry was going to get off the ground in Australia was by um, pushing hard to get some infrastructure into the industry and some government support. So he and Barry. Um, put their heads together, and they, between those two men, they literally, literally forced um, the federal government to a series of initiatives over a couple of years, very, very quickly, which we we should all be grateful for. Um, one of those was the starting of the Australian Film and Television School, which is obviously now the Australian Film, Television and Radio School. They also started the Australia Council, uh, Australian Council for the Arts. They also started the Australian Film Development Corporation, which effectively, which begat um, the Australian Film Commission, which begat Screen Australia. And they also got their heads together with Don Dunstan, who was the Labor Premier of South Australia at the time, and got the uh, South Australian Film Corporation going, which then forced all the other states to have a, an equivalent body. So Film Victoria was next, and then uh, the Screen New South Wales uh, body, and, and Queensland WA, uh, South, South Australia was the first. And that was Barry Jones and Philip Adams' initiative too. So four major institutions um, that now continue to underpin or, or you know drive if you like um, the the investment um, the marketing and 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 development of um, of films film and television in this country uh, all down to those two men Barry Jones and Philip Adams which is why they're my patrons my founding patrons of the Australian Film Future Foundation limited our not-for-profit to um, that we started uh, a year or so ago to restore and digitize uh, all the lost Australian films, but they they're terrific and and they were exciting times. Those those early seventies, uh, 70, 71, 72, 73. By the time I got to Melbourne, I I joined the film, Melbourne Filmmakers Cooperative and got involved in the um in the whole kind of independent filmmaking scene. People were making everything from experimental short films to documentaries to to, to even to feature films. Um, it was great times, and we all did it together. We did it in in 
in the spirit of, of sort of, um, you know, pooling our equipment and, and, and pooling our resources and crewing on each other's films. It was and Phil Noyce. I, I, Phil Noyce and I were, were friends back in those days. Um, Phil was working at the Commonwealth Film Unit in Linfield in, in Sydney when I was when I was up there working at um, first at Channel 7 and later at the ABC, but he was in my social circle. I knew him at that stage um, quite well. And others, you know, similarly, um, it, it was a very cooperative... I guess that underpins, just to bring it full circle, that kind of underpins the philosophy behind Ausflix, really. Um, I've always yearned to get back to those days. I've always yearned to to for filmmakers to be able to work in that sort of um, in that way. And I know small groups of people do form up. I, I, I appreciate that people coming out of film school often team up with two or three um, friends and, and, and sort of get things done, and that's terrific. But I guess I wanted to have something even bigger, um, a, a real wagons in the circle. When Alan Finney and I um, first talked about Osflex, my idea was that um, – it was a real opportunity to finally get all the wagons in a circle again and get all the films in one place and get all the filmmakers engaged and give them a vehicle, give them a way to get their content out, not only across Australia but globally because Ausflex is actually a, a global streaming service that you can watch anywhere in the world. But, um, yeah, that was it, it was trying to um, capture that lightning in a bottle again, I guess, Um Ausflix very much um, harking back to the to the spirit of the filmmakers' cooperatives of the early seventies. It makes sense that you know, given how you've seen the industry evolve over such a sustained period of time, that you would kind of be very well situated and placed to see where 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 the puck is going, so to speak, and see what yeah. uh, what the trend will be. And you've got the uh, the first. Um, Aussie Awards coming up very soon. We do. Uh, 7th, Saturday the 7th of April. It's only about 10 days away now. But, yes, the idea there is, again, um, after last year there was a there was a, um, um, a couple of phone calls came to me um, around the idea that um, independent films were never going to get a look in at the big awards nights um, because their budgets were too humble or their distribution was too, too small scale. And that um, it was really frustrating to make a great film for a million dollars um, and for it to be a very strong and well-made film creatively. People put a lot of blood, sweat and tears and passion in it and, and it was a strong and well-regarded film critically, but that um, it was never going to win a prize at the, at the, big, at the big kind of um, uh, awards. And I, my kind of initial response to that was just to say well you know i guess we probably just need an independent film award you know we need something that recognizes that now ha- having said that and thinking back on it there had there used to be independent film awards and, and if magazine inside film magazine used to actually sponsor them um for some years I, I actually never participated in them i must say but i know that they were inside film magazine uh, independent film awards for some years um, but they seem to have disappeared. That that seemed to have evaporated. Maybe they decided not to keep it going. Um, it is a hard thing to do, I must say. I've got to be honest and say that I've spent the last couple of months um, really a lot of my time, energy, thoughts, and, and, and I guess even my credibility, if you like. Uh, my social cred has gone into kind of sort of pulling this together and, and staging these awards. I've got a great, I've got a great team, a small team of people here who are who are pitching in to, to make it happen too. But um, the idea, I guess, with the awards is that yeah, we do we do under five million dollars. Um, you know, we do need to recognise those films more um, and put more, I guess. Um, not only more love around them, but also sort of more marketing um, around them. And I think the awards are a good way to do both of those things. They're, they're attracting a lot of interest um, in terms of, of, of love. We had 106 films entered this year, which is absolutely staggering. We estimated we might have. Yeah, we thought we might have 30 or 40. We, we've got uh, 106 um, documentaries, uh, feature films, uh, web series, you know, right across the board. Um, we worked hard to get the Indigenous uh, filmmakers involved, so we've got a, a really good showing in the Indigenous um, area as well. Um, we've gone out to sponsors. We found good support from sponsors to, to help us meet the costs of running the event, and um, all the proceeds from the event will go to the Australian Film Future Foundation to the to the not-for-profit for the restoring of films. So it's it's been a labour of love. It's called the Ausflex 
awards. We, we're a sponsor. We're a naming rights sponsor. We've put in um, a, a vast amount of, of money and we're also giving a, a prize, a $250 uh, account, if you like, a free $250 voucher to um, to every every winner in every category in the 20 categories on the night. So uh, we've had some good support from uh, Screen Hub, uh, from Star Now, from... Um, a number of other industry organisations that provide services to the industry, like Sound Firm, uh, who are in the post-production uh, facilities area, and um, a few others. Uh, you know, they've all jumped on board and given us given us money and, and prizes and things like that. So um, that's been really great. That you know, your first year, I you start anything in the first year, and you often think, well, um, you know, people may need to see it before they uh, commit to supporting it. So maybe not till the second year. But people have been really, really, Alistair, they have been really, really passionate for this from as soon as we announced it. Um, people just wanting to be, um, you know, wanting to enter their films, wanting to be involved in, in the jury. There's 35 jurors and these jurors, including Phil Noyce and Jill Armstrong and, and Nadia Tass and Philippe Mora and Brian Trenchard-Smith and, you know, a, lo- a long, long, long list documentary makers like Jen Pedem and Kitty Green, lots and lots of producers, great composers like David Hirschfelder and Nigel Westlake and Caitlin Yeo and cameramen and just everybody, everybody. You know, it's a, it's a super jury, I call it, 35 um, really terrific people there. And then on top of that, um, you know, we had obviously, um, I guess, a big job at the end of the day with 35 jurors, 20 categories and 106 films, the tallying. Um, of all the scores and, and working out the, the judging system, the voting system and stuff um, was one of the biggest challenges. But that, that'll, as we go forward, I think that'll all kind of um, settle down really, really well by the, by the second year. Um, it'll go very, very smoothly, I'm sure. Yeah, well, you know, I hope that uh, ho- hope this is the first of many because I think Australia needs these kind of accolades and recognition for the hard work that goes into making these low budget independent films because you know it's kind of it's it's the bloodline of the industry you know not every film's going to be uh, a, a mad max and by mad max i mean fury road or or a sure. uh, or a happy feet sure. or an oddball you know there's there's got to sure. be space for the for the uh you know that's not me um and yep yep Yep. You know the yep. um, legend Absolutely. of Ben Halls. You know these these kind of films that are sure. really, in some ways, flying under the radar, but in other ways are actually you know making bigger waves um, on a global scale for up and coming filmmakers. What's interesting about those films, of course, is they're punching way, way, way above their weight because these are films. That's not me, which you know. Not that they could ever, you know, they say themselves they could never do it again. But Greg and Alice made that film for under sixty thousand dollars, and and even Ben Hall at at at, at a million dollars is an insanely great achievement. But the the point I think about um about this that I keep coming back to is the fact that seventy four percent of all the films we make in Australia, and that's a lot these days, are made for less than $5 million. There's only a quarter of the films that we make that are actually over $5 million. Everything else, the three quarters of the, all the films we make are under $5 million, and uh, according to Screen Australia uh, report. So, you know, that's um, really most of most of the people in this country are running around making those those films, those under $5 million films. And as you say, most of those are under $2 million and, and under $1 million. There's a lot of films. We had a lot of entries under $500,000. So I think, yes, it's a it's a, um, a training ground on the one hand, but it's a great uh, inexpensive way to try out ideas. And it's also, at the end of the day, inevitable that people who make successful low-budget films are going to, are going to move on ultimately to... Um, you know, to the to the to the higher levels of the industry. So we should definitely recognise and support. I'm devastated that Screen Australia, when when Ruth was the CEO, decided to get out of supporting low budget films. You know, they made a deliberate um, policy shift away from low budget films and uh, what she disparagingly called as called credit card movies, and she um, insisted that they wouldn't be funding any of those, and basically left through through those filmmakers under the bus, if you know what I mean. When I think back on my own filmmaking experience and working with very, very small budgets, you are pushed to use your imagination. You are pushed to use your 
resourcefulness and and you have to be incredibly patient you have to be very 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 imaginative in how you solve problems and do things and i i think there's absolutely no better way to become a good filmmaker than to start by making really really low budget independent films i actually think that's where the best filmmakers are going to going to come from uh, in, now and in the future absolutely and you know, if you got a phone, you got a camera, so you can uh, yeah. you, you know you can just I guess start shooting stuff and put it into practice. Um, thank you so much, Ron, for for chatting with me, for telling me uh, you know about quite an incredible career. Um, if anyone listening is interested in uh, in checking out Ozflix, they can do so at ozflix.tv. Uh, if, if there are any screenwriters out there who've been listening and listened all the way through who might want to get in touch about that um, thriller screenplay that you have in mind, how can they reach you? Uh, look, they can just write to us. Um, it's, it's really, really simple. We've got two ways. You can register the project, um, but you can register the project at, a, at, a, at, our, um, at our registrations page, but that's a long, complicated URL. What I would suggest is probably if they write to Alexandra, A-L-E-X-A-N-D-R-A at ozflix, O-Z-F-L-I-X dot net. Um, Alex looks after development here and she'll field their inquiries. Fantastic. Uh, Ron, I end all of my conversations with the same question. question is, what makes you silly? What makes me silly? Golly. Well, I do like, I must admit, I I probably would say um, I don't drink. And I don't take drugs. So the thing that makes me silliest, I suppose, is when I'm in a room with loud music and um, really kind of get into dancing to, to loud rock music. In a, <laughs> that's, that loud rock music <laughs> makes me silly. What's some of, the, what's some of your, uh, your rock of choice? Oh, gosh, I've got very, very broad taste. I have very broad taste. I mean, I can get excited about everything from Simon and Garfunkel through to Metallica, honestly. <laughs> um, and a big fan of big fan of The Who, big fan of The Beatles, big fan of Led Zeppelin, massive fan of Led Zeppelin. So, yeah, lot, lot, lots and lots in there. Absolute classics. Thank you so much, Ron. Thanks, Alistair. All the best. <laughs>